from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast. It's the Friday Roundtable here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca. And we are in the Classic Rock 981 studios uh, this afternoon, joined by uh, former city councilor uh, Jared Zafman, who, of course, with London Home Builders Association as well. Lawyer Ali Chabar is here, as is former NDP candidate Shauna Lukowitz. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is uh, I actually was at a news conference on Monday where, uh, Ali, you were one of the, the people who were speaking at the news conference. I want to talk about what's going on with uh, the new chief here in the city of London. Uh, uh, Ty Trong is going to take over as the police chief in the city of London uh, coming up uh, in a few weeks here. Uh, my, my, my first question to you, and, and, and a lot of folks who are listening to us right now would have heard my conversation with Murray Faulkner about this. Uh, I, I did want to ask you about that decision and sort of uh, how we got there and, and how you think the... The, the police service moves forward here because there were some questions that I received and I know that some other folks in the media received them from London police officers who were somewhat dismayed that we didn't go with an internal hire and go with Trish McIntyre. What was your reaction to hearing that, Alex? Yeah, you asked the first question at the press conference on Monday. I was actually a little surprised it wasn't just because of the proximity of the Leafs win over Tampa. I thought it, I thought it was <laughs> going to be. That was gonna be I my thought you were going to lead with that, but uh, but uh, but you know. So if you want to talk about things that were surprising, that's uh, that's the first thing that yeah. surprised me right there. Uh, but uh, all joking aside, yeah. It, it uh, listen um, when you're hiring uh, a position of this nature, uh, a public profile position like the chief of police, uh, it doesn't come. It doesn't shock me. It doesn't surprise me that there is people out there that will have a range of opinions on the spectrum in terms of what uh, they feel about the hire, right? Some people will be supportive of the hire. Some people won't be. Some people will say, well, you should have went with, you know, the other, you know, other candidates. Um, uh, and so you you referenced in your comments, I think, uh, uh, recently, Craig, I heard that you said people reached out to you, right? And, and yeah. expressed a range of opinions. Same thing for me. People have reached out to me since uh, uh, and re- expressed a range of opinions, some supportive, some not, right? I mean, that's the nature of... It's part of that's it. Everyone's going right? to have an opinion. And and the thing that I would say to anybody and what I've said to people is, listen, everybody's entitled to their opinion. This is our chief of police. It's our police service. It's our city. So you're entitled to your opinion, right? Um, but the board, and again, I've heard you say this, Craig, and I agree, and I appreciate that, that you're saying this. The board were the ones that received the applications. The boards were the ones that the board were the ones that did the interviews, the ones that did the reference checks, the ones that asked, asked the questions and got the answer, right? And then we are guided. We have a, a fiduciary obligation to do, um, uh, to uh, you know, to act in a certain way. We we made a decision at the end of the day to, to proceed with Chief Designate Trung as our chief of police uh, in London. Some people will agree and some people won't, but that's that's a decision that we made uh, uh, as a board collectively. Uh, Sean or Jared, do you have any reaction to, to that news? Because a lot of folks were surprised by that, I think. I thought it was a, it was just interesting. It was different news to get. I mean, I think, you know, given how uh, we've had mostly internal hires, my understanding, for a long time. 25 years ago was the last time we didn't go internal. Yeah, and yeah. so having, uh, having a bit of a, a new face, someone that brings some different perspective to London, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And frankly, I, you know, I was curious... Obviously, I know there was a potential um, internal candidate that maybe was in the running as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I look at the, the resume and the, maybe some of the rationale as to why this individual is coming. I mean, obviously, 
Um, a lot of his work has been done uh, around human trafficking, um, which certainly I know there's been a lot of work done with the London police um, on this as well. And I think, you know, coming from uh, home builders, I know that we are, as far as new home sales, a lot of people that are buying new homes in London are coming from the GTA. Um, and so I don't know, you know, if maybe some of uh, those issues or things are coming to London uh, with individuals that are coming here. Uh, but I think there's probably a need for a bit of a different perspective as London is evolving and growing. And maybe this is the is the right pick. It fits the bill. And, and I, you know, Ali, to you and the board, I give you guys a lot of credit. I can't imagine this is an easy decision to make. Um, and so, you know, excited to see how this how this unfolds. Yeah, I mean, I was I was a bit surprised. I, I didn't listen to the announcement and I just kind of had it in the back of my head. I, I thought it would be Trish McIntyre. So later on in the day when I heard differently, uh, I don't I don't have a strong feeling or reaction to it. I think, you know, Ali, your point about the board seeing the applications and having those conversations, you know, um, we've probably all, you know, had some experience in hiring and there's lots of factors that go into making a decision. So it's hard from an outside point of view. You know, this isn't a terrible candidate who was hired as the chief. There's no. lots of rationale. The resume is yes, it's in, there. really strong, obviously. It's yeah. there. So, you know, there's justification for that. Um, uh, you know, what this means for London, like, you know, I wish him the best. I, I'm, uh, you know, hope he does a great job. Um, but, you know, some of the issues that exist within the police services will be present. Um, the chief doesn't change the culture of the police and some of those relationships with communities that have been strained and, and, and more recently strained. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do, of course, for any new chief that was going to be hired um and uh yeah i just i wish him the best but you know there's lots to there's lots to do <laughs> yeah and and um listen the police board had a beautiful problem in the sense that we started with a big pool of candidates that applied internally externally across the province across the country right we had this massive number of, of, of candidates that applied and we whittled it down and we whittled it down we had first round interviews and we had second round interviews and ultimately we whittled it down to to a smaller pool and then at the very very end we had a small pool of candidates and the, it, the reason i said it was a beautiful problem is that we had uh, multiple qualified, competent, capable individuals that could have stepped into that role and done an exceptional job, actually thrived in the position, right? And that's what made our job so difficult in the sense of, okay, you had to choose between candidates that were exceptional, right? And that's a good thing for the service. It's a good thing for the city of London, but it was a difficult thing for the board. And that's why we took our time on that front. But despite the fact that people have a range of opinions uh, with regards to the, uh, to the chief designate, I will say this, and I touched upon it during the during the press conference on Monday. There's a substantive element to it, and there's a symbolic element to it, right? And uh, um, you know, substantively, I won't go through his resume, other than to say, yep. you know, over two decades of experience, uh, and, uh, he's worked with the U.S. Department of Justice uh, on policy. He's worked with the Premier's Office on policy. He is renowned and uh, recognized by the Ontario Court of Justice and the Superior Court of Justice as, uh, I think, the only. Uh, officer in Canada uh, uh, when it comes to drug trafficking uh, and organized uh, crime and uh, uh, and other things, right? So I'm not going to, but the reason I'm talking about the substantive is because there's a symbolic element to it as well. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know, I know. Uh, well, Trish would have been a symbolic. But that's just too. exactly, you, you, when I said, I know, yeah. I know, I know, yeah. you finished my sentence <laughs> yeah. for me, right? And so I know that when we're talking about symbolism, uh, there's there's different facets of that conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So in this instance, we're talking about uh, Chief Designate Trung is the first, uh, uh, will be the first racial uh, visible minority to chief to ever assume that office. That's a great thing that should be celebrated, right? That's not to suggest that, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
there's not more work to be done, that there's not other portraits on the wall that should be, you know, whether it's uh, race, whether it's gender, whether whatever it is, right? Uh, it, for me, it's a, ch a reflection of the changing face of the city of London. The city of London 20 years ago versus now, uh, the demographics are changing. And, and when we talk about chiefs of police or political office or other, uh, you know, high profile positions, I think they need to, uh, we need to be cognizant, at least at a bare minimum, that the, the, that the leadership should reflect the people to whom they're leading, right? And so, uh, and I agree yeah, with that entirely. Yeah. So, anyways. I agree with that. Entirely. And I don't. I mean, I'm. I'm. I think the biggest challenge I would imagine for the chief designate, it's. I don't. What I I hear, you know, chatting with individuals, I don't think there's any huge concern that this new chief. I think was is a good pick from a lot of people. Yeah. Um. More just, you know, from I think Craig, what you shared, but obviously when you have a strong internal candidate, you know, a new individual coming in from outside. I think their biggest challenge likely won't be the community, but maybe just internally and internal. making sure that there's acceptance and and that you know a good leader yeah. can make that happen. But it takes time too. Yeah, and, and there's going to be, and I talked about it with Marie Falk, and there's going to be that element of, you know, there are some officers who are going to be a little bit ticked off, of course, by this, and and, and we'll see how that sort of uh, manifests itself in the workplace. And hey, maybe it won't. But again, this is not about Tai Trong. That, that that's not yeah. the, the 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 conversation is about whether that guy has the qualifications to be a police chief. The, the answer is very clearly yes to that question. So it, it, it's just a matter and, of you know how you run the organization. And I heard your yeah. interview with Murray, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And, and I've known Murray for a long time, respect him greatly. Right. There's a lot of things that Murray said that I agreed with, and, and some things that Murray said that I disagree with. That comes as no surprise, right? But. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 no one will ever question Murray in the sense that he's making an informed opinion because he sat in the chair. He knows what it is, right? But yeah. uh, the board decided uh, to proceed the way they did, and now we move on. We support our new chief and, and proceed accordingly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, that's the way that the the the, the, the community's going to have to go as well. Uh, let's talk about a couple other stories that I wanted to get to this week. One is surrounding renters, and, and you may have all seen this, but uh, there's a couple of buildings over on Webster Street where uh, folks who are renting there and have been there for a very long time receive letters saying, "Hey, we're going to do." some renovations and the letters quite frankly were misleading mm -hmm. there the letters are saying oh we'll give you five thousand dollars if you leave by the end of may they didn't say within those letters you have the right to come back at the exact rent you're paying right now once the renovations are over so it was it was a shady it was a questionable situation we're seeing this more and more with tenants in different spots in the city shauna so is this on the city to fix this is this on the province to fix this is this on everybody to fix this like who where, where does the ball stop with kind of the way that these the, the renters have been treated here yeah i mean we are seeing more of it and we know that obviously we have a, a housing and homelessness issue in the city we've talked about it a lot on your program mm -hmm. and we talk a lot about building building housing, right, and the need to build housing. But we also, most of all, need to keep people housed, and that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And what's really concerning is how, um, you know, this is targeting people who are already marginalized, people who are, um, you know, on ODSP, who, um, you know, are on fixed incomes as uh, older people, and who don't have a lot of other options and maybe don't have all the information about what their rights are. So, you know, in terms of this city's approach to addressing housing and homelessness. Obviously, you know, a lot of the, the responsibility lies with the province. This is a provincial issue. But when we're talking about this in a municipal sense and what's happening in the community, this has to be part of the conversation. Because if we want people, you know, if we want to address the, the, the housing crisis, we can't keep contributing to it by having more and more people.
people, um, you know, being evicted and and uh, and there just aren't a lot of options for people uh, to go. And so there need to be repercussions for landlords and whatnot who are, are treating tenants this way. And then that's not currently the case. Yeah, that's the, the part that kind of bugs me is, okay, we're going to send you a letter saying you've got to get out and we'll give you five grand if you get out and we're going to act like we're being altruistic about this. But you are holding back really pertinent pieces of information in that letter. Jared, what was your reaction to that story? I think we've seen this one in some other instances. And I think you're right in this case, you know, the, the language used and what was shared and what wasn't shared, I think was particularly interesting. And I think in, in the past, we've seen maybe letters that are a bit more informative of what people's rights are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, there is a balance. I mean, I understand, you know, from a, from a building, from a renovation perspective, uh, from a cost of living perspective, everything is everything is going up in costs. I mean, the, if you're looking at updating a building that's 30 years old, um, you know, it's an investment that you purchase. Mm-hmm. I understand, you know, people want to make their renovations and their investments. And, and obviously, they can't just keep charging the same rent. Uh, costs go up and they have to be able to recuperate that somehow. So there is a balance, um, but certainly, you know, uh, people are getting pushed out more and more. I think we see a lot of this as, uh, again, we're getting a lot of people coming from the GTA where they can't necessarily afford to live where they are currently living, getting pushed out of their communities, coming into London. And so we're seeing even some of our uh, local communities being displaced. Uh, And I don't know where the solution lies on this. I mean, if it's a I, I don't I don't know if municipalities are necessarily the ones that should be the ones to. Uh, unless they're empowered by the province, I think in a same way across the board to be able to help on this. But I think it's got to come likely from the provincial level, uh, so, you know, yeah, whether that's, uh, you know, penalties or, or fines or whatever it might be to some of these purchasers that are pushing people out. Um, but I just, you know, I think if it's a city by city uh, um, policy, I just I get concerned that, you know, what, you know, similarly where people are getting pushed out, that maybe that same thing would happen, you know, depending on which community you're in, unless it comes as a provincial mandate across the board. Right. And that's that's where I think it's got to come from is, is, is the province. Ali, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think uh, th- this discussion is has to be compartmentalized into a macro and a micro. Right. So on the macro front, I agree exactly with what you're saying, Jared, in terms of kind of the larger issues that are at play. Um, you know, different levels of government, different, you know, the private sector building, like all of that comes into it. But then we uh, look over here and we talk about the micro and uh, in the sense of it's a it's a question of access and resources for me for tenants. Right. So a lot of tenants that are there that are uh, renting don't know what the law is. They don't know uh, mm-hmm. how to access the resources that are available to them. Even if they knew how to access them, do they even have the resources to appear before a board or, or uh, for a hearing? They, they can't afford lawyers and they can't afford afford paralegals. And so, so you have a lot of people, sure we have legal protections that are in place that are designed to protect people from these situations, but what good it is is it if you don't a know what they are or b even if you do I can't afford it right and so that that talks about kind of like about the micro issue so there's like so many other big issues that we're dealing with, there's a there's it's multifaceted there's there's macro micro there's nuances it's 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 but there needs to be a solution here because uh, um, uh, these tenants it was actually heartbreaking to read that 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 article uh, to see kind of. Uh, people struggling and saying, now, what do I do? Am I going to a shelter? Yeah. Well, then we got sh- shelter issues as well, right? So, yeah. So it's, if, if the, the letter is like, okay, here's $5,000 uh, to, to vacate by May 31st. That's 
first and last months and yeah. maybe a little bit left over for moving expenses. You know what I mean? Like that's not a lot of money when we're talking about a place to live. It's no. not a lot of money. And it's really like, it, I think it's really unethical to offer those kinds of incentives. particularly, yeah. yeah, without, you know, being clear about what they're actually, what's actually going on and what their rights are. But even so, you know, for somebody on a fixed income, that money is going to go very fast. And we know that, you know, the, what is it? An average one bedroom home is like $1,800. Something like that. Yeah. It's not, and you know, I've looked for housing for my my daughter who's in university, and we have a lot of resources. And the amount of time that it takes to find a place, you, it's a full time job in and of itself. And you're mm-hmm. talking about people who are already, you know, um, you know, pushed to the limits and having to deal with multiple systems just to survive, right? Um, and it's really how systemic poverty just yeah. keeps uh, going and going, and how people take advantage of that. And then you're spending hours on the internet looking for this. It just if you yeah. have internet. Yeah, access. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's just, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And it comes down to, and we'll see if Jared agrees with me. I think we should be building more homes quicker. <laughs> <laughs> I would absolutely agree with you. And, uh, you know, I think on a good note, we are working with the city quite actively on that front. Um, but you know, it's, and that's one of the things that, I mean, the, the faster, you know, I'll, this my, my personal bias here, but yeah. the faster we can, you know, get things processed at City Hall and make improvements there, certainly the more, you know, inventory we can have it. Because the, the challenge we have in the community, I mean, you know, we have, a, I think, like a 1.8% vacancy rate, which is ostensibly a zero. And, you know, when you don't have that flexibility in the market, people are then going to charge a lot more money because supply and demand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that that strong demand exists. And so, unfortunately, without the excess supply, which we drastically need, uh, we're going to keep finding these challenges, sadly. Yeah, it's uh, it's too bad. It's a, it's a tough situation, I feel, for the people who are um, who are in this spot. Uh, another story that I, I wanted to mention this week, just as we uh, look through the various happenings this week, I want to talk about how happy London is. <laughs> or unhappy. <laughs> or unhappy London may be. And this is an organization, we were just talking about this sort of before we started recording, that I wasn't necessarily uh, aware of, but they have done a survey where they take some some census, uh, some census data from 2021 and a few other pieces and, and sort of patch it all together to find out where the happiest city in Canada is. And they say the happiest city is Caledon. So, okay, that's great. Good good for Caledon. And they ranked the 100 biggest cities in Canada. And who comes in at number 100 but London, Ontario? I feel like reverse Casey Kasem. Uh, <laughs> all the way down to number 100. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not what you want. Uh, the four categories where they ranked us were uh, economy and real estate metrics, health and well-being metrics, community and environment metrics, and location and demographics metrics. And we were below average in all of them. We were 95th in economy and real estate metrics to what we were just discussing. So do you think we really are the least happy city amongst the 100 biggest cities in Canada? Or perhaps is this just a situation where somebody had to be at the bottom? Other ones close to us would have been Windsor, North Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, and Sarnia. So a lot of Southwestern Ontario content there. Good job. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think London's the unhappiest city in Canada. No. I think it's, you know, the metrics that you use and how you weight them. And these issues are all connected, right? So if you have housing, if you've moved to Caledon or you've moved to Milton, you've 
somebody was saying this to me this morning. It, you know, you're moving there because you're buying a house, right? Not necessarily yeah. for that community. If you're buying a house in that community, you have a certain economic status that you know it, to be able to afford to live there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, you know, obviously, if you have a house and you have a good income, you're going to be healthier. We know, like the determinants of health. You know, all of these things sort of play in. And so, you know, I think cities like London and Toronto and these larger cities where social problems do exist because this is where people come their services if you're a renter you're probably not renting in Caledon or Milton you're renting in a larger city um, and so we see some of these issues in you know these mid-sized cities that we don't see in in smaller places um, just by nature of you know we have healthcare, we have you know other other things here that bring people and um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not wearing that label of the unhappy. I reject <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm fine. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll say this. Um, I'm a firm believer that our perspective shapes our reality, right? And so when you ask about any city and their happiness factor, that's a subjective question, right? And so th- th- just compartmentalizing for a second and not talking about methodology and not talking about metrics and not talking about who is this organization and what are the questions yeah. that they're asking and who did they ask and you know uh, so, so like even if we just just we put that stuff aside um uh, is london the least happy uh city in 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 canada i i I, I doubt it, but you know what? I'm also cognizant of the fact that it would depend on who you're asking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Exactly. If you're asking the four people in this room what our happiness level is when it comes to the city of London, I bet you it would be a much different answer than if we went out onto the street and asked other people, right? Yes. And so we have to be cognizant of of, of that. Um, and then if even from a more kind of an I'm I'm a kind of generalization, but if you look at I was born and raised in the city, right? So I've spent my 42 years uh, here in London. And if I look back at what my perception of what London used to be, right? If you go back 20 years ago from a community safety perspective, you go back to, you know, there's a whole kind of bunch of metrics. There is an angst amongst certain segments of the city that says, okay, we've, we've seen a deterioration in certain areas of the city. And that might be when I say perspective shapes our reality. If your perspective, if you have this kind of nostalgic view of what you think London used to be and compare it and contrast it to today, you might say, well, I'm less happy because of, and then fill in the blank, whatever those issues are, right? Some people may agree with that. Some people may disagree with that. But if, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I'm with you, Shauna. I don't, I don't think this is an accurate representation of, uh, or even even how meaningful it is, right? But uh, um, I have some questions. But. Yeah, I don't, I don't put too much stock into this survey. Um, I mean, you know, we were chatting about this before, but Halton Hills and Milton being one of the top, you know, in the top 10 of happiest cities. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of commuters there. I don't, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily. <laughs> a lot of people who live in Milton that do not work in Milton. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, London certainly for a large part provides that ability to uh, live, work and play in your city. Uh, you know, uh, opportunities if you're downtown for walkability. Um, you know, I think we also do have our fair share of societal uh, health challenges as well. Of course. You know, certainly to Ali's point, you know, uh, <laughs> hearing people's comments about how they feel about downtown prior to COVID and then afterwards. I mean, it's been such an ongoing challenge that I think, yeah, certain parts of the city, certain segments, it's it's hard to combat that in certain ways. Yep. But I think overall, if I was to look at the list and compare ourselves to these other cities, I don't I see us having a fair share of being a happy city, you know, in comparison to others. So that's why I just think uh, the, the metrics and everything used, it's hard to say, well, because of all you know these four factors, 
that's what determines happiness. I just don't know if I put a lot of stock in that. And I think we need to be careful, right? So, you know, there's a certain lens that's used in terms of what is seen as making up a happy city. And if it is income and if it is housing, you know, what goes along with that is a lack of diversity. It goes along with a lack of vibrancy in a community. You know, we need to have a variety of, like, demographics and people and and whatnot and I worry that you know something like this is overemphasizing things that really aren't about happiness and really are about privilege um, over anything Mm -hmm. else and so you know whose happiness is it actually measuring and whose unhappiness um, well and and that's that's exactly what we're saying where like the my perspective shapes our reality it's Mm -hmm. like if you look at a rose you can focus on the petals or you can focus on the thorns right and if you're going to focus on the thorns then you're going to be yeah. Like that's that's going to be your primary focus, right? But it, but and there are we have thorns in our city, right? We do. But we got a lot of petals as well and roses, right? So not to get all flowery here with my analogy. <laughs> I, I pun it's was spring. actually not intended there, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you, you know, I, I had a lot of people in my res- responses yesterday when I tweeted the survey out saying, "Hey, we're number one hundred Saying, "Well, you know, of course we're number one hundred Look at our look at our downtown and look at our housing affordability and, exactly. but like. Look at a lot of these other places. Like they have some not great stuff going on in their downtowns too, and they have the same exact same, if not worse, mm-hmm. housing affordability situation than we do. Yeah. So it can't just be that. Like I, I just think it's something where you know I'm not going to call it a random numbers generator, but they they put some numbers in from a from some census data from 2021, and this is what it got spit out. And so we have some big challenges in London. We do have big challenges in London, but I don't think that the challenges that we have in London are that dramatically different from a lot of other similar communities across the country, or certainly across Ontario. This uh, yeah. this point, I don't know, maybe uh, may not be as relevant to next subject we speak about, but yeah. certainly. More housing uh, would certainly make a difference. I yeah. think, you know, people people can afford more. They can have that supply. Uh, I just happen to have, want to go back to that point specifically. But, you know, it's, I well, mean, it's a fair point. Like, and, and, you know, if I, if I speak to people from that have come here from Toronto, I mean, they're incredibly happy here in comparison to living in Toronto because of their cost of living, what they can do here, which they, mm-hmm. you know, which they can't mm-hmm. in yeah. Toronto for the, same, for the same thing. You sell a million-dollar condo in Toronto. You come here, have the same million-dollar home, and you got a nice big backyard and, mm-hmm. you know, several bedrooms and all the stuff. It's a different... It's a different situation, right? But walkability is just like one, like probably yes. not a huge factor in the thing, but it, it factors into the discussion. And, you know, like London does not have a great transit system. And no. sure, you can live in a walkable neighborhood if you have the financial means to buy in that neighborhood. As far and as I can tell, we have one walkable neighborhood in London. Like it's Wortley and that's it. Like, you know, these villages. Yeah, yeah, o- OEV. Yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's not a big number, put it that way. Yeah, no, it's not a big number, definitely. Yeah. 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 So you're right that it's just a situation where this is. I don't know. I, I, I don't think we're the least happy, put it that way. But walkability is something we could definitely work on. Yeah, and I don't think anyone would be surprised that l- yeah. if London, did, you know, were that we're not at the top, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, I think, Ali, you said it. Like, we have huge social problems in London. We do. Like, I, you know, in my rejection of being the unhappy city, I do not want to downplay the real issues that London has and the magnitude of those. And the fact that, in, in fact, it is headed in the wrong direction and not the right direction, then there's lots of reasons um, for that and so you know London is sort of known as being it's a mid-sized city that's kind of known as being mid to 
use like the younger generation's <laughs> language, right? And I, I do think that's well deserved. I do. I've, I've thought it many times myself. I was raised in London as well, and I love this city. Um, and I, and I think it could be a whole lot better if we were just a little, a lot more ambitious yeah. uh, than we are. Ambitious is a good word, and yes, I think that we could be a lot more ambitious than we are. Uh, before we go, uh, I want to talk about federal politics. And this week, the story that got blown up was uh, Michael Chong received some threats, or there were threats about his family that were uh, sent by a Chinese diplomat. CSIS was aware of this. Michael Chong didn't find out till this week. The threats happened in 2021. So now there's questions as to, did Justin Trudeau know that Michael Chong had been threatened? Did Mike, Marco Mendocino know that? Did Melian Jolie know that? I honestly have no idea whether that's true. But the fact that Michael Chong didn't find out about this means that somebody somewhere has badly screwed up. And I, and I think that we've seen some agreement on that in different spots of the political spectrum. I know that uh, the NDP's critic has said that. I know that uh, Catherine McKenna went out on Twitter yesterday and said, hey, somebody is messed up here. Mm-hmm. So that's a former liberal cabinet minister saying that. Uh, interesting story. Fascinating story. I just don't know if that matters in a federal election whenever we do this next relative to some of the other stuff that, as Jared mentioned earlier, some of the other stuff that we were just talking about, I think for most people is going to matter a lot more. So this is fascinating stuff for Ottawa people, but does it really matter to most Canadians is my question for for all of you. Foreign policy questions are rarely ever ballot questions, right? So an international matter, even though it affects, uh, you know, our member of parliament, Michael Chong, uh, it won't be a ballot question. Uh, uh, And it probably won't even be front of mind for the voter that walks in, let alone the ballot question. That being said, trust is an issue, right? And... Uh, if there is the perception that there's an erosion of trust uh, at, um, in uh, whether it's the prime minister, like the PMO or CSIS or kind of the, the, the corridors of power, um, that's something that people will remember going uh, when they go to vote. Maybe not this specific issue itself, but the culmination of a whole bunch of it. So whether we're talking, you know, scandals that preceded it or we're talking about issues with the government, we're talking about the prime minister, right? If there's a theme that emerges about the erosion of trust, that general sense is what people will remember when they go into the ballot box. So nobody's going to remember Michael Chong, probably. No, no one's going to remember this, but they will remember kind of that that takeaway uh, uh, feeling. So uh, it could be indirectly, uh, indirectly it could impact the federal election. Shana, you've run in federal elections. Do you agree with that assessment? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, okay. it's, uh, you know, this isn't going to be a ballot box question. And I, I imagine most people are not even paying attention to yeah. it. But, you know, this government has been in power a long time. Um, there has been a consistent, um, you know, trust issue that uh, that has played out in many different facets around uh, the Liberals. And so whether consciously people think about Michael Chong and they think about this moving forward, it's another layer of media and uh, perception that will sink into people's um, thoughts around the Liberal government and whether or not they deserve to, you know, have another term. And, uh, you know, these are kind of like, you know, under underneath this, there are issues around like, you know, the safety of our country and security and like, you know, huge issues yes. um, that even if people aren't consciously thinking about it, it, it there's, I think, at some level, it shakes people's trust in systems that are already um, being shaken in lots of different ways. So I'm, uh, I'm I agree, Ali and Shauna, I think it's not going to I don't think it's going to raise to the level in the next election that it becomes a major issue. Um, in my mind, I think that's unfortunate because I do think this has 
huge ramifications, national security, uh, you know, to, to Michael Chong's point, whether him as an MP or uh, maybe there is a, you know, if it's a Chinese family that's here in Canada, but they're having families targeted mm-hmm. overseas, mm-hmm. Uh, that's a huge concern. And this does also build on, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of sort of drips and drabs and leaks from, uh, it seems, from CSIS or whoever it is to the media uh, over this time. That's also kind of a red flag. And, and like now, I personally am a fan of people leaking stuff to the media, but I get why <laughs> other people may say, not be. You don't say <laughs> Uh, that's as shocking as Jared yeah. being pro-building, pro pro-housing, right? Yeah. Very surprising yeah, yeah. stuff. Uh, but I get why people are like, wait a minute. Why is CSIS leaking like uh, leaking like a boat with a bunch of holes in yeah. it? Like I, see, I see valid concerns on both sides of that, yeah. right? Because it's, well, you know, it's a concern that our national security agency, there's leaks coming out of it. At the same time, now all of a sudden the public is hearing about some of these items that obviously raise some concerns. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's and it's certainly difficult for any government, whatever party to address these broader political and security issues when you really, and I understand you can't say much about these things and certainly, you know, uh, asks for diplomats to be expelled from our country does have ramifications. So I do get that. Um, but curious to see where this ends up landing, because I think whatever decision gets made, will have further, further ramifications. Ends up landing in the context of an election or in general? Just in general. Uh. Right. Yeah, like I don't think an election will. Know. Well, who knows where this will go? I mean, who knows? But uh, I don't think an election will be called on on this issue unless it keeps building. And I think the issue that you know, so yeah, there's only so much that the government can say, and that is understandable. But when there's contradictions and there's obviously missing pieces and potentially like misrepresentation, if not outright lies, you know, that's where the concern comes in. Yeah. And that's the thing, like whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Michael Chong or if we want to stay with China, the two Michaels, right? Right. Or we're talking about international conflicts, uh, you know, Ukraine or refugees coming in from Syria or from Afghanistan, right? They're hot topic buttons in the moment, but then nobody thinks about them afterwards, right? So uh, at least they don't think about it to such a degree that it impacts their decision when it comes to vote. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the ballot box, we're almost always talking about economic issues. We're talking about fiscal issues. We're talking about taxation. We're talking about things like that. So, How much does it cost for me to find a place to live and how much do my groceries cost? I think are going to be the two biggest things in this election. Right? Right. Right. Exactly. And so... Uh, I don't know what the shelf life on this story is. Probably not that long, unless there's some revelations that take place that kind of yeah. compromise the prime minister in terms of saying, "Oh, d- what did you know, and when did you know it, and why <laughs> didn't you share it when you Absolutely. right?" And then, uh, but but I think this will probably pass, barring any unforeseen circumstances. We'll probably won't be talking about this by the end of next week. I wasn't sure if housing would relate to the subject, but I do think it does because, frankly, I, I don't think. I think housing, cost of living, affordability, those are going to be the well, biggest I, biggest items in the next election. I agree. I think cost of living is going to be the biggest item. And what's the most expensive thing in the cost of living? Housing. housing. And, so, you know, I'm yeah. uh, I'm headed with the Canadian Home Builders Association next week for our day on the hill in Ottawa. And, you know, we'll be talking about this and we'll be talking about, uh, you know, the housing accelerator fund, the $4 billion that the federal government's putting out for housing related uh, items for municipalities, because that's. That's really what's top of mind. For sure. I, I need to let your listeners know that I am now saluting Jared for segueing between Michael Chong and uh, that, right to housing. Like that's special. That's, I was that's well done. I was, I was gonna say that's a great segue. There. Uh, <laughs> it's you know that's, that's what segues are all about on a that's, program like that's this. Skill right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, I don't know when we're gonna have a federal election. Uh, I don't even know what the riding boundaries are gonna be in the next federal mm-hmm. election. I don't think anyone knows. Uh, I I just wondering, you know. Do you think that people want to have one? 
Are we at the point where people are wanting to have an election or do we, or are we like, cause I think there are a lot of people that say, Hey, it's time to change the government. But I think there are even more people that would be annoyed by the idea of what's going on. You know, there's all those stuff going on in the world would be annoyed by the idea of going to the polls right now. Do you think people generally want an election right now? I no. don't think so. No. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, we federally, we had two that were almost back to back, right? And, and they produced and almost the exact same exact, result. Almost yeah. what? To like a couple MPs? Yeah, with, within like, like a, within five or six yeah. MPs. It was, oh, a liberal minority. Okay, good. Good, good job, everybody. Right. We did it again. Uh, I, and so that that's the part where I say, uh, did, like, I don't know if that would be the result again. Justin Trudeau was trying to win a fourth consecutive election. No one's ever done that before in the history of this country. Um, so I don't know if he's going to be able to accomplish that. But if we, I don't know if the idea of going to an election early where we hypothetically could get that liberal minority result again is what anyone's going to be super excited about going to do. Right. But if you ask, and so I agree with you guys all, yeah. like, no, I think the average Canadian, whatever that means, uh, is like, no, no, we're good. Thanks. But no, thanks. Uh, we can, we can uh, still hold out a little bit longer. But if you ask certain people on certain ends of the political spectrum, if you talk to a conservative, that's big C, like we need to get rid of this guy. Week, oh, yeah. Right. They want, they, an election they, they, want they yep. want an election last year. Right. Yep. Uh, if you talk to some people on the other end in the, in the NDP camps that are saying, well, this deal that we have isn't working out. It's time to you know go to the polls and uh, let the people wait. But I think the average nonpartisan Canadian who uh, uh, would say to you, "No, nah, you know what? We can we can probably there's still a little bit more shelf life on this. Uh, we might go to the polls in the next 12, 18, 24 months, but uh, not before that." Right. And when so. people are struggling, right? When people are having trouble finding housing, or you know their mortgage prices are gone up, and their groceries have gone up, and all these types of things, people are not focused on wanting an election, even if they blame the government for that. People mm -hmm. are focused on meeting their needs and what kind of what's in front of them. And you know we're still in a COVID era where we're not. Um, out of that and we have that's the, not what the, the world health organization says <laughs> <laughs> but we still have yeah. even like the worst of it dragging yeah. along in terms of you know where we're at and yeah people i don't think people's minds are, are going to an election and that's not to say that i th obviously i do not think the liberals are doing a great job do i think they should be replaced yes do i think it should happen tomorrow probably not um so and i think even especially in the in the context of ontario We've had so many elections yeah. in the last couple of years that I think people's people's sort of you know election battery is, yeah. is all drained out. And so I, we we had two elections in 2022. We had one in 2021. We had one in 2019. We had two in 2018. So it's been yeah. it's been a lot. And if you look at the Abacus poll that came out today, it was uh, 33 for the Conservatives, 31 for the Liberals. And so there's not this major groundswell on either end saying. Oh, the conservatives are running, and the government's law. It's it's basically it's within the statistical margin of error, right? So again, I, I think that's emblematic and reflective of the fact that most people are just kind of we're good for now, right? So yeah. uh, let's wrap it up there. So thank you very much to Shauna and to Ali and to Jared for coming in and joining us today here on the Friday Roundtable. Of course, the Craig Needles podcast can be found at classicrock981.com and londonnewstoday.ca. We thank you for downloading, listening, reviewing, subscribing. All the great things you can do with the podcast. Thank you for doing them with the Craig Needles podcast. And we'll be back at you with a new episode on Tuesday. The Craig Needles podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 